0: Nehemiah. Now, we are in chapter 9 for the second week. Um, there are a lot of verses to cover, so I'm going to be reading them. I could not put all the verses up on the screen. So, um, grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back if you want to read along with us. Um, actually, anybody need a Bible can just raise your hand. Maybe Paul can bring you one if you need one. Um, or you can just go in the back and grab one. Do you, want, you, want a you have one? Okay. Uh, We have Bibles in the back, so you can just go grab one. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. Please um, take it. We'd love to make sure everyone has the Scriptures in their hands. We're in chapter 9, Nehemiah. The year is 444 B.C., 24th day of the seventh month. Tisri is the name of the month, September, October. It's the beginning of the new year for the Jewish people that same month. The city is Jerusalem. The people of God, by the grace and the hand and the providence of God, were brought from captivity in Babylon back to the promised land. That's where we are. You remember in the book of Ezra, they had returned under the, uh, Cyrus the king uh, because of God, really, because Jeremiah was told that he, they would return. Ezra, we know, the book opens with the building of an altar and the temple is built under Nehemiah. His leadership, there's a new walls being reconstructed. We've seen that already. And we've already had to transition in chapter 7 from building stuff to renewing people. From reconstruction of mortar to the reforming of God's people. Last week we spent time talking about the importance, kind of a side note, of knowing the difference between the sanctifying work of God... The sanctifying work of God as an event that took place at our salvation and then the process of sanctification that happens during our life, which is incomplete and needs developing. At our salvation, when, when we repent of our sins and we are regenerated by the Spirit and we're adopted into the family of God the Bible speaks about, we have been forgiven of our sins, we've been justified, that's being declared righteousness, righteous by the righteousness of Christ, we're washed in the blood of Jesus... And we were sanctified, we were set apart, 1 Corinthians 6, we were set apart from sin and from the kingdom of darkness, and we've been delivered and dedicated to the kingdom of Christ. It's a one-time event, 1 Corinthians 6. It happens at our salvation. And then something Christ has done for us, by grace alone, through faith alone. It cannot be earned, it cannot be merited. We've been set apart from darkness to light, from the kingdom of, of, of evil to the kingdom of Christ. But sanctification, we said, is also a process. It's something that needs developing. It's in motion. It takes work. 1 Timothy 4.7 Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but train yourself, he says. Rather, train yourself, train, gymnazo, gym, exercise. Train yourself for godliness. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence... But much more in my absence, Paul says to the church of Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of His good pleasure. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation or work in your salvation, but work out your salvation. So when a believer comes to faith in Christ, by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, is the only way to come and have salvation. The tricky part is working that salvation, working, excuse me, that yeah, that salvation out. The process of sanctification, like reading your Bible and gathering on Sunday morning, gathering in community group, confessing your sins, which we'll see today, regularly repenting of your sins. We have to work that process out. The tricky part is we can't get into this into the mode of thinking that the process somehow is now being done as I earn my salvation. See, it's a free gift. It happened at salvation. And then the evidence of our genuine faith will be the work, the process of us becoming more like Jesus. Okay? Now in chapters 7 through 13 of Nehemiah, God has already delivered his people from bondage, from slavery, from Babylon, and brought them to the promised land. He's already worked in their lives he already raised up men and women to rebuild and restore a ruined city but now in chapter 7 to the end of the book he's building in them this godly disposition this work the process of sanctification last week we saw how God's people prepared themselves as they were getting ready to confess their sins if you remember they wore they fasted they were they were, they were honing in on, on what's important they they, they wore a sackcloth that that, that Material made of camel hair. they place dirt on their heads, all outward signs of a profound sorrowness, this brokenness, this humility and repentance. They're getting ready in chapter nine. Verse three, it says, "They spend three hours reading the Bible. Three. Three hours reading the Bible. three hours confessing and worshiping God, a six-hour service. In Nehemiah nine, verses one through three is kind of an overview of the service. And verses 4 through the end of the chapter is really what's taking place during that six-hour service, which we will look at today. We see in verse 4 of chapter 9, the Levites, the, the leaders of, of, of the law, they read the Scriptures, they broke up in two different um, groups. One group was lamenting and crying out with a loud voice, um, you know, distress over their sins. And the second group was, was really just declaring and praising and worshiping God for who He is. You have both you know, confession and, and, and repentance and you have this, this, this uh, idea of just recognizing the character of who God is. And that's important. When we confess our sins, it's important to confess the brokenness and, and, and the, the idea and the reality that we are sinful people, but we must never not, in our confession, in our repentance, in acknowledging our sin, forget how good and great and awesome God is. It's so important to do both. You have one person petitioning and the other one's praising. That's where we're at, Nehemiah 9. It's the longest prayer, by the way, in the Bible. Um, Look at verse 5. They're, They're prepared. they got these two groups. One is calling out petitions and brokenness over sin. One's praising the Lord. And he says to the people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And then this prayer begins in verse 5 and 6 and following. Last week, we covered two things in the first couple of verses of parts of this prayer. The first, if you remember, was that God is the Creator. Chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone have made the heavens and the earth, right? And all that is in it, the seas. And and you preserve them, he says in verse 6. Not only Creator God, but you're the preserving God. You're the sustaining God. And then they move from creation to covenant. Talk about the covenant that God made with Abraham. So it goes from creation to covenant and this entire prayer which we will see today and we'll look at today is really about God's faithfulness, God's greatness. This prayer is about God's goodness. It's a God-centered prayer. That's how prayer should be. It's okay to petition the Lord, we're told to do that, but let us all have God-centered prayer on his goodness, his greatness, his faithfulness and his compassion. Okay, so that's where we're at. Look at verse 9. First thing we'll see. Well, actually, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the captivity. In this prayer, they're going to rehearse the time in which they were captives in Egypt. Then they're going to go to their conquest and when God delivered the land that he promised. And then at the end, we're going to see this confession, but throughout, we're going to also see God's compassion. So that's kind of the outline if you're the one person that takes outlines. That's it. You're welcome. Their captivity, verse 9. So just like God made a covenant with Abraham, it was a defining moment. They're rehearsing this historical event when God was forming his people. They move on to what happened in Egypt, verse 9. And you saw, right, creation, covenant, and then they say in verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is even to this day. And you divided the seas before them. And that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths. As a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night. To light for them the way in which they should go. The works of the Lord in this prayer. Is a time in which they're reflecting. One of the most important salvific. Or or salvation or redeeming work. In the history of God's people. It's this miraculous deliverance in which God's people were delivered from the mighty army of Pharaoh. And they're rehearsing this. And the plagues that came upon Egypt in that day clearly demonstrated the superior omnipotent power of God punishing the Egyptians' arrogance and their refusal to let God's people go. If you know the story, we went through it a couple of months ago, Exodus, you'll remember that Pharaoh was defiant, that Moses came to Pharaoh and said, God's going to send judgment and plagues if you don't do as he said. And what was really important, if you remember that text in, in Exodus, is what Pharaoh said. He said to Moses, like, really, are you kidding? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let him go? And let his people go. Who is the Lord that I shall obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So God sent, we know, ten plagues. Each and every plague was directly against the multiple gods, small g, of the Egyptian, proving that God is the God of creation. God is the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator God. He made a name for himself. When it was all over, Pharaoh got his answer. Who is the Lord that I shall obey Him? That's who. And God showed this extraordinary strength, not only delivering them with the plagues, but also delivering them through the Red Sea. You know the story. The sea opened up. The Israelites went through. The sea swallowed the Egyptian army, as the Levites put it, like a stone in the mighty waters. And then in verse 12, they remember God's wonderful leading. It was a pillar of cloud by day and and fire by night. See, Exodus is all about the redeeming work of God. It's about redemption from slavery. And here the people are praising God because God kept his promise to Abraham by delivering them out of bondage into the promised land. Look at verse 13 and 14. They recall God's goodness, giving of the law. Verse 15, they praise God for his goodness and his provision for food and water. In the years in which they were wandering, verse 13 says, you came down from Mount Sinai, giving of the law, and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. You gave them rest and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. Verse 15, you even gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So you deliver them, you provided for them, all this goodness of God, all this all this work of God on their behalf, and then you see the other side of the Levites. One is given the character of, uh, preaching the character of God and the goodness of God, verse sixteen. But here's the guilt: but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiff-necked people, didn't obey your commands, verse sixteen. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So, you following it? The response to God's miraculous power in redeeming them, his wonderful procedure in leading them, his law that was given to them as a gift to show how to please Him, and His gracious provision for feeding them was met with rebellion and disobedience. This is a followed by a reply from the other side of the choir again in 17. But you... The character of God. A God. You're, you're a God who's ready to forgive. Yes, all that took place, but you're a God ready to forgive. Verse 17, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in said steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even even when. Verse 18, when they made themselves a golden calf and said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And they even, says, had committed great blasphemy. The point is as crystal clear as you can get it. They are guilty, but God is good. They are guilty, but God is good. After forming the nation, God has committed in love to lead his people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed. We see them once again, remind themselves of the goodness of God. Look at verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, Again, reminding them the pillar of clouds to lead them, verse 19, in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar by night. For light for them, the way by which they should go. Then look at 20 and 21. It says that it was, it was God who gave them the spirit. It was God that gave them the food and the waters. God that met their physical needs. So much so, for 40 years, they didn't, you know, clothes didn't wear out, feet didn't swell. He helped them d- defeat their enemies. Look at verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. So the Spirit didn't show up on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, you gave your good Holy Spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water. Verse 21 40 years, you, O Lord, are good and, and provided. You sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell. You know, at this point, the the, the Levites are just rehearsing and summarizing creation, covenant, exodus from captivity. God was faithful, brought them all the way out to the promised land, everything that took place by God's good hand. Derek Kidner, in, in, in a wonderful commentary, writes this. Throughout this miraculous pilgrimage, they lacked nothing and appreciated nothing. This part of their history ends with an undeserved, unstinted, Inheritance full of all good things. Hmm. Let's draw out something we could take away from this. The point of rehearsing the great exodus, the first exodus from slavery, is to remind them and us that without God's goodness, that without God's grace, without God's intervention, they, like us, are desperately and dreadfully slaves slavery remember biblically defined as serving and worshiping anything more important than God treasuring anything more than God himself serving and worshiping creation rather than the creator God who is blessed forever and ever amen Romans 1 that is why if you read the story of Exodus Moses went to Pharaoh over and over again he did not say let my people go He said, let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so they may sacrifice to me. It was about worship. It was about being set free from slavery and tyranny and bondage to worship. Just serving the one true God and not idols. And without God's intervention, we're all slaves. Everyone's living for something. Everyone's serving someone as the song goes. Got to serve somebody. That's what the story about just Exodus is all about. We can't justify ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot set our hearts free from the bondage to slavery. It's only God's work. The Levites are rehearsing this history, this, this God's redeeming history and work, and their rebellious acts remind themselves and us again that their Exodus, our Exodus, our freedom, From slavery and bondage. Your exodus from slavery and bondage is through the good and gracious hand of God. His love never fails. And the scripture is clear. Unless we bow our head and we bow our hearts and we worship the one true God above everything in our life, we are desperately in slavery to the things we worship. We talk about idolatry a lot here. Because even good things that become ultimate things become idle things. Their response from captivity shows God's goodness and mercy. Look at their conquest, verse 22. Okay? To the, 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 the creation, covenant, captivity, God provides, brings them out to the promised land, verse 22. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That's covenant language. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand and their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. Verse 25. And they captured, Talking about the Israelites, they captured fortified cities. And a rich land, catch that, a rich land took possession of houses, what? Full of good things. Cisterns already hewn. Vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Again, summary of how God showed his kindness, God showed his, his goodness, and God showed that he is providing and keeping his promises. This is covenant language here. Two things, at least two things were promised to Abraham. There were more, but at least two here we see. One, the multiplication of the nations. He said, go outside, look at the stars, see all the stars, so will your descendants be. Your lineage will have that many descendants. And we see that happening here. Also, he promised that there'd be a land in which they would take. And then we see that here as well. If you know the story, under Joshua, the Israelites march in and invade Canaan. They conquer the land. They take everything in the land, all the treasures. It was God that gave them victory. It was God that provided for them. It was God that gave them the houses and wealth. But notice what it says. I love this verse. Because it says, in, at the end of this verse, it says, they took possessions of the houses And look what is it. Good things, cisterns, vineyards, everything that they were given, it was more than they deserved. The land was a fertile land already, it was already beautiful and luscious. The houses were already furnished, they had everything in it. It was a furnished property. The water was running. They had cisterns. There was plenty of waters, plenty of food. It says the the, the orchards were ripe to pick. They walked into this land, and everything is, they just moved in. Everything was provided for them. In fact, the word delighted in verse 25 is the Hebrew word for luxurated. They were in luxury. They stepped into the promised land and lived in luxury. (laughs) That begs us to ask the question. Are you luxurating in God's goodness today? are you you taking for granted all God's provisions? Are we focused more on what we don't have or on what Christ has provided for us? The wrath-absorbing sacrifice, what we deserve was borne out on Jesus. For those of you who have repented of sins and trusted Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, you've promised eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth. There is nothing in this creation, in this world, no matter how good it may be, that can take the place of all God's goodness to you in Christ, nothing. They were luxurating in it, right? We deserve separation, we deserve wrath, and what do we have? We have reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. But, but there's a danger, I think. I think it continues even to this day. Warren Worsby put it wonderfully, he says this, Israel delighted themselves in God's great goodness But they did not not delight themselves in the Lord. Like the prodigal son, they wanted the father's wealth, but not the father's will. End quote. Novelist John Steinbeck wrote, If you want to destroy a nation, give it too much. Make it greedy, miserable, and sick. Sometimes having too much is a curse. Sometimes having too much is curse. We're going to be studying Proverbs pretty soon, so I have two of them today. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you. Say, who is the Lord? Sounds like uh, King Pharaoh. Or at least I don't want to be poor and steal and profane your name. Right? Too much. Looking at the gifts and not the giver of the gifts. We've already seen this back and forth. God is gracious, we are wicked, we are disobedient. We see it here again. They're celebrating the provision of God. Man, we moved in, everything was provided for us. How wonderful and awesome and providing you are, God. Thank you so much for your unbelievable amount of blessing. Everything we don't deserve. And then the other choir, <laughs> you could hear it going on one side... Oh, oh, we had apples and oranges and houses and treasures. Everything was so verse. Then the other one says, yes, but, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. They were defiant and rebellious, yet God was good. And God made it clear through the law. God made it clear through the prophets what His will was. And they just conveniently murdered the prophets. God met every need. And yet their rebellious spirit tried to eliminate the message and the messengers. Instead of praising God, it says that they blasphemed Him. As a result, result, verse 27, God tells us that God... The Bible tells that God corrected them and handed them over. Verse 27 is a tough verse. Therefore, therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. Verse 27. That's tough. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. Man, it's still crying out to you. You still hear them from heaven, and according to your great mercy, again, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. God is patient, but God gets to the point when we push, push, push. Verse twenty-eight. But after they had rest, did evil again. You abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried, God is gracious. I Man, listen. That's what I'm trying to tell you. God is gracious, God is good, God is compassionate. Yet when they turned, verse 28, and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you deliver them according to your mercies. I think they're rehearsing at this point in the time of the book, if you know anything about the Old Testament, in the time of Judges. Deborah, Gideon, Samson, they speak of Judges. Judges is a a book By the name Judges, it it recounts a a, a tragic, yet simple, but tragic reality that God's children, year after year, kept rebelling and rebelling. The theme of Judges is very simple. Israel is serving, loving, worshiping, walking with the Lord. They fall into sin. They fall into idolatry. Israel then is punished. They're enslaved in their rebellion. They cry out. Ask for deliverance and and need help. The cycle continues. And God hears their prayer. God has compassion. He sends them a judge. He leads them out of bondage. And they have rest and they have prosperity once again. There's peace. It says rest here. And then the cycle continues. They get lackadaisical. They get um, uh, taking God for granted. Things become a little bit easier and then the cycle begins. They sin, they're rebellion, they're in captivity, they cry out, the judges come, sets them free and the cycle continues. But time after time it says, they cried out and you delivered them. Look at verse 29 and 30. They move to the prophets even. God sent prophet after prophet in verse 29. And, and, and the Jewish uh, uh, people are crying out, verse 29, and you warn them in order to turn them back to your law. You warned them, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, many years you bore with them. Lord, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands talking about Jeremiah, we're talking about a time of Ezekiel, we're talking about a time of Isaiah and the minor and major prophets, when God sends his people to stop, repent of their sins, repent and turn and then God used, as we know the story, successive world powers to bring discipline to them. 722, the Syrian army captures the ten tribes, destroys Samaria. Uh, 597, the last two southern tribes, uh, Babylon, the new world power in the Nebuchadnezzar, comes and burns Jerusalem to the ground. That's what got him there in the first place. Now, it's easy for us to say, wow, <laughs> like... How much does God need to do? How much provision does He have to give someone? How much How much will these people need to learn their lesson? How much evidence does God have to show Himself for them to stop their shenanigans? I'm Irish for the moment. Shenanigans and rebellion and start obeying. I mean, how much? They just... Hundreds, thousands of years of God's faithfulness. How much do they need? Now, before I answer that question, let me tell you a story. A pastor was walking down the street when he came upon a group of about 12 or 14 kids. They were about 10, 11 years old. The group had surrounded this, this stray dog, and he had them surrounded this dog. And the pastor was concerned that they were going like, to hurt this dog. You know how kids are, 10, 12 years old. So the pastor went over and said, what are you doing with that dog? One of the young boys said, the dog is just an old neighborhood stray. We all want him, but only one of us can take him home. So we've decided together as a group that whichever one of us can tell the biggest, fattest lie, that one would actually be able to keep the dog. So that's what we're doing. We're telling the biggest, fattest lie, and whoever lies the best gets to keep the dog. And the pastor's taking back and says, yeah, you boys shouldn't be having a contest about telling lies. And then, of course, he's a pastor, so he went into his little sermonette, about 10 minutes long, talking about beginning with, boys, you know what, let me tell you, it's a sin to lie. Did you know that it's a sin to lie? And he went on and on, and at the end he said, when I was your age, I never told a lie. And there was dead silence for about a minute. The pastor thought, good, I'm going to get through to these kids, finally, and the smallest boy, he gave this big sigh, and he said, all right, give the pastor the dog. He's earned it. So before we judge, as I say, let's relate, right? Let's act, let's not act like this doesn't happen to us. If someone were to write down my history, seven days long, but let's say my whole life, even if it was just seven days, but if it was a large chunks of my time, my history, my personal history, would they not see the same cycle? The answer is Yes. The answer is yes. Many times God has shown himself faithful. Many times God has showed himself gracious. And yet, I want to live on my own terms. I want to do things my own way. Do you look at your life and identify with Israel? I hope you do. Because if we took an honest look at our lives, we will see all the good things God has done for us. And we will see that often, many times, too often, we transgress against him don't trust Him, not relying on His goodness, His compassion, and we take it for granted. And then we wonder why God has to discipline us, His children. Here's the thing. We live in a stupid, stupid culture that cannot grasp that discipline flows from God's goodness. If you belong to Jesus and you're being disciplined, have been disciplined, or getting ready to be disciplined, it's one of the three, it's always ultimately for God's glory and your ultimate good. <clears throat> Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proper discipline, good discipline, is a proof of love. And what we need to be reminded is that as Christians throughout Scripture, the Bible portrays God as a father and we as his children. And those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, we belong to him. We are his children. And he's compared to a loving father who not only blesses his children, but disciplines his children for their own good. You can read Hebrew 12 in the New Testament, that if you're not disciplined, you're illegitimate children. A loving father carefully watches his children. And when they re- rebel and they defy his orders and run toward danger, parent in love disciplines that child to keep him safe. It almost sounds silly to have to say that in our culture, but we need to. Because nowadays it's, no, you can't discipline, is a lack of love. No, opposite. Discipline is proof of love. Proof of love. When a child runs towards sin and refuses to resist temptation, the father chastises as we as well, so we could share in his holiness so we can enjoy his presence, so that we can run away from harm. Again, it happens in many different ways. Some of you can give testimonies of God's loving discipline in your life, and it takes different forms, sometimes just feeling guilty. It's another stupid thing we have in culture. Don't feel guilty. If you feel guilty, it's wrong. Well, no, if you did bad, you should feel bad. If I do bad, I should feel bad. Guilt in and of itself is not wrong. If it drives you to despair, it's one thing. If it drives you to the cross, it's another. Other times, a lack of intimacy. And you're sensing, you know what? I'm not living right. I don't have this close, intimate walk with Christ today. Because I'm living in rebellion. Again, because God is good. That's why. We experience relationship fractures. Or any other number of consequences for choosing sin. Sometimes, according to 1 Corinthians 11, this physical illness, not always. Not saying anybody who's sick, but God loves those. He disciplines those He loves. Now, there's a difference between punishment for sins, and I want to just talk about this for a minute. There's a difference between being punished for our sins and being disciplined for our sins. Okay, there's a difference. All our punishment for our sin was where, on the cross. Jesus Christ dies, the wrath of God poured out on him, and those who are in Christ, no wrath remains. We give our life to Christ, he's our substitute for our sins. He forgives us of our sins, God remembers them no more. However, we make wrong choices and there are unpleasant consequences. And God uses those consequences to teach us, to show us, to prevent us from making the same mistakes twice. Or in my case, 35 times, it depends. So the difference between punishment and discipline is that many times punishment can be done without the purpose of discipline, then it becomes retribution. That's a problem. If you have children, you know the deal. Sometimes you punish, but you're not disciplining. And you know it's out of retribution. It's like you've got to get yours because you're getting yours, not out of, you need correction so I can show you the right way. A pastor, Chip. Ingram, he writes this, I I liked it. He says, the focus of punishment is always past tense. First you did this, then you did this, and now you have to pay the price. Then he writes, in his mercy, God's mercy, God wiped away all eternal spiritual implications of our past. He doesn't treat his children according to the rules of punishment. Discipline, on the other hand, is future-focused, always pointing toward future acts. It has nothing to do with retribution and everything to do with redemption. Whereas the purpose of punishment is to inflict a penalty for an offense, the purpose of discipline is to train for correction and maturity, end quote. See the difference? It's a huge difference. The Israelites were continually disobeying God's command. Prophet after prophet, goodness after goodness, warning after warning, they dug in their heels... And God brought chastening upon them, sometimes plagues. He even brought their own enemies against them to chastise them. Think of this as well, and we'll move on in a minute. There are men in Scripture that the Bible talks about God having a very close relationship with, whether it's John and Jesus, or whether it's Moses or David. There are many many places in Scripture. We're not going to go through them all, but think of three Old Testament men. Moses, God called Moses... And Moses did great and mighty things, but Moses was chastised by the Lord. He did not obey, and he said, "You know what? You're going to look at the Promised Land, but you're not going in." David, God told David that he would not build a house. You're not building the house of my name. Why? For you are a man of war and have shed blood. Solomon, you've kept my covenant. You have not kept my covenant and my statutes. Therefore, I will tear the kingdom from you. I will give it to someone else. Notice these men had made mistakes. They've been chastised by the Lord, but God did never stop loving them. God never stopped forgiving them. God brought discipline upon them, but God always receives a repentant heart. God always looking to restore the relationship. When we sin, we can expect the discipline of the Lord. It's because he loves you, and he loves me. That is the reason. So we have their... their, their this confession coming on, but we have this goodness of God. We have uh, this covenant God made and now the conquest and we see that God is disciplining them. And look lastly, the compassion and the confession. Okay? Verse 31. If you have an NIV, it says, but, if you have an a- uh, ESV, which I'm reading, it's nevertheless, same, same Hebrew word, translated differently, because it makes such a big difference. But God, it makes such a difference in the text. nevertheless, in your great mercy, compassion is the word compassion. You did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you again, O oh Lord, a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you. that has come upon us, upon our kings, the princes, the priests, the prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. No excuses. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandment. And your warnings they have, that you've given them. Verse 35. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the land of the rich land that you have set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Verse 36. Behold, we are slaves to this day. They've come full circle. It went from them, they, and now we read about ours and we. As they look at their own generation, at the place, they came full circle. They started where they are and now they're ending where they are. Verse 36. goes from them and they to we. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves, verse thirty seven, and its rich yield goes to the king whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestocks as they please, and we are in great distress. You notice that? So God's great mercy, God's compassion, verse 17, 19, 27, 28, is what they were banking on. They recognized their sin, but they're hoping and putting their hope and trust in the compassion of God. It, it, to me, it's simply amazing that these people can look through these hundreds of years and talk about how rebellious and, and wicked and uncaring about God and yet wind up always talking about His wonderful compassion toward them. Family, we should never be satisfied with disobedience. We should never ever settle for rebellion. But neither should we be ultimately discouraged and destroyed by the history of waywardness in our life. Don't let it destroy you. Let it bring you to the place. Let's look at that, but yet let's highlight the mercy and compassion of God. Paul did write to the church of Rome that we should never sin that grace may abound, but he also said where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. Amen? Your failures, my failures, is an opportunity to celebrate the compassion and greatness of our God. Just think for a moment. If God's justice were to come down, if we were to get what we deserve, lights out, curtain closed, The Levites know that God is in the right. We're not talking about recognizing God's compassion and therefore denying our sins. But verse thirty-three: You've been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have been faithful and dealt faithfully. We're the ones that acted. We're the ones that acted rebelliously. What's the point? Here it is: God's covenant. God keeps covenant. And his steadfast love to you and to me, even though we don't deserve it. Sin violates his holiness. Sin destroys joy. Sin quenches the Spirit's power. Sin ruins God's best and purpose for your life. Sin brings discipline. Sin results in grief and destruction. That's why they said, we're in distress. The people recognize generation after generation that the sin problem doesn't go away. And some of you here this morning are brave enough to admit that you're in great distress. There's a cycle in your life. You've messed up and you wonder, will God ever forgive me? Paul says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God's grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me. Are you overwhelmed by God's grace? Are you overwhelmed by his mercy? Is there sins that have been unconfessed that you need to confess before God? And I'm here to tell you that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's going on in your life, God wants you to turn from your sin and to enjoy and celebrate His mercy, His compassion toward you. Max Lacato tells a story about a young girl from Brazil. She wanted to see the world. Young girl wanted to see the world. Just discontented at home. Only had a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, a burning stove. It was all she had. She thought life got to be better in the city. She's in Brazil. One morning she slipped away. She broke her mom's heart. And knowing what life on the street would be like for this young girl, this attractive young girl, her mother Maria, hurriedly packed when she knew she was gone to go and find her. And on her way to the bus stop, she stopped by this drugstore. She had one last thing to do. Pictures. The mother sat in this photo booth, took all the money she had, and took pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the bus to the city. Maria knew Christina, her daughter, had no way of earning money, and she also knew how stubborn her daughter could be. She would not give up. Knowing this, Maria began her search in bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went all of them. And each place she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a bulletin board at a hotel, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't long till all her money and all the pictures were gone. Maria had to go home without her daughter. The mother cried on a long bus drive home to that small Brazilian village. Then he writes, it was a few weeks later that young Christina descended from the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the village was so far in so many ways away from home. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again and again. And there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed that small photo from that mirror. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, my daughter, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. If there's anything we can learn from Nehemiah 9 and this historical overview of Israel's history is that God's love and compassion never fails. The hymn writer Thomas Chisholm tells us, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news? Isn't that but God in mercy and grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Doesn't it say in Ephesians 2 that you and me, we are all dead in our sins and in our trespasses? We all walked according to this world, the prince of the power of the air. We are sons of disobedience. We lived in the passion of our own sinful nature, the flesh carrying out the desires of the body. Nature, we are children of wrath. Ah, but verse 4. But God... But God, not but Lou, not but King's Chapel, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus dies on the cross, the mass and the weight of accumulated sins and transgressions hovering over us, rested on the shoulders and the body of Jesus God's goodness, God's compassion, God's mercy is the only thing that's keeping us from being crushed by it. All that wrath you and I deserve, Jesus bore. He died for it. Isaiah 53, all of us are like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned away to his own way. And the Lord, the Father, has laid on him Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Look to Jesus. If you look to Jesus, if you will trust God, you will do what the Levites have done in Nehemiah 9, come to the place of recognizing the distress call of divine compassion. God will forgive you and he will show you his mercy. He will love you, he will forgive you through the blood and the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is God asking of us today? What is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do right now? What practical ways can we step out in faith and trust God? Christ. Next week we'll look at the last verse and into chapter 10. They make a covenant with God. They've they've rehearsed this story. They've seen God's faithfulness. They've seen their rebellion. And they make a covenant with God. Actually it's not making a new covenant. They're going back to the covenant God already made with them. But they were making steps. It's called repentance. It's called turning from your sin and turning to God. This communion table is about that. It's about the covenant that God has made with us. It's about the covenant of grace through the shed blood of Jesus. That's what this is all about. Israel was making practical steps, but let me tell you something, and we'll see this next week. They still failed. It's not about what they did. It's about what Christ has done. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. If this covenant keeping was by you or for you or done because of you, we're all going to hell but if this covenant was kept by the Lord Jesus Christ that while we were dead in our sins he gave his life and died as a ransom died as a substitute died in our place absorbed the wrath of the Father he's inviting us to come in compassion and mercy and forgiveness to come to the cross bring your sin that's all you got and you can have mercy and compassion and forgiveness even though we don't deserve it that is the gospel If you want to be a Christ follower, you need to repent of sin to turn. Invite Jesus the Lord and Savior of life. God will show you His mercy. God will show you His compassion. If you are a Christian, but you're struggling with guilt, look to Christ. Let's all look to Christ. Celebrate the great mercy. No wrath remains for those who hope in Christ. The bread is his body that was broken. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It reminds us. And God invites us to the table. It's broken for you. Jesus died. His blood was shed. His atonement for sin. We, we did a series on atonement. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of for sin. And that's what the communion table is. So if you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. Bow your head say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I, I, have, I see this cycle in my own life. There's nothing I can offer you. Nothing. You've done it all. I need to receive it. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And then come and celebrate. The band's gonna play and we're gonna come and celebrate communion. If you're a Christ Father day and you got this cloud over your head, listen, it's not about you. God's compassionate. God's forgiving. Come home. Come home. Give him your sin. He will give you his righteousness. (laughs) I know it says really, is that simple? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're new here, this table is a communion table for Christ followers. If you're a follower of Jesus, the table's for you. If you're becoming a Christ follower today, this table's for you. If you're not, just sit back, sing the song. We'd love to talk to you after the service. Pastor Ricky, Pastor uh, Lou, and other pastors that are here, will just grab us. We'll talk to you. The band's going to play when you're ready after you've confessed your sin. It's the time that the church comes confessing their sins and repenting of sins. I think it was uh, Spurgeon. We don't stop repenting because we don't stop sinning. So the church and everyone is called to repent. It means to confess our sins, turn from our sins, and then celebrate the joy of God's grace, His compassion from the cross of Christ. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you so much. Lord, there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can say. There is nothing we can add to the already accomplishment of Jesus he alone is our good God and Savior. He alone has paid the penalty for our sins. He alone has shed His blood so that we can have forgiveness. He alone is the way to compassion, His way until forgive to forgiveness. Father, we pray, Lord, that we will be a people who confess sin, repent of sin, and then celebrate the work of Christ on our behalf. And together, Father, we will be made more and more day by day into the image and likeness of Christ so that, Father, we may declare your glory and the good news of all that Jesus has done. So, Father, work in our hearts. Help us to respond by the power of the Spirit in a way that is appropriate and right that brings you much glory and us great joy. We pray as we continue in Jesus' good name.